This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, folks, to the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Kasten-Smith, and joining me today is Will Bushman. Hi, Sam. Will, we are continuing our series, our 10-part series, into the question, how did we get here? And so in our previous episodes, we've looked at how America had roots in Christian education. We talked about the philosophies of America's foundation. We looked at the French Revolution Then we looked at how government began to take control of the education system, including primary and secondary schools, and then colleges through the Land-Grant Act. And so that began this process where the public schools and government-controlled schools began to outnumber the private schools, which was fine because we had an agreed-upon ethic. We, We believed that our institutions were generally founded in Christianity. We believed in the great principles of our founding generation. You know, we talked about how our liberties come from God, how we all have a common absolute view of morality, how everybody has is entitled to individual rights and protections against the collective and the government. And finally, how we believed that you should restrain the powers of government because government was dangerous. And so we, we constitutions filled with declarations that limit the powers of government. Everybody agreed. Last week, we talked about how Charles Darwin came on the scene. In 1859, he writes on the origin of species. And then in 1871, he writes the far more destructive book, The Descent of Man. And both of those books rocked the faith of the American people. They began to reorient the way that we saw the world. We began to believe that humanity was going to be progressing and evolving towards some perfectible, in some sense, society. Progressivism flowed out of that. You had a, And you had a society that began to walk away from God or any belief that the scriptures were inerrant, inspired, trustworthy, authoritative, and it had devastating consequences. In the subsequent century, we see Hitler. We see the the Soviets that looked to Darwin as the basis for what they did. We saw eugenics. We saw tremendous fallout from that. Today, we don't have much better news. <laughs> Today, we're getting into Karl Marx, who actually was writing before Darwin was publishing his major work. So we're now we're backing up to 1848. So we're still in the middle of the 1800s. But Marxism... And Marx's thought are going to have tremendous influence for the next 170 years. Just just to start, Karl Marx, undoubtedly one of the most influential people to ever live. And so in 1848, he authors the Communist Manifesto. And so the basic idea behind that is he's calling upon the poor, the commoner, the workers, the what he called the proletariat, to unite and to overthrow the owners of industry, the the bourgeoisie, in order to bring about the common owning of all things. Like the state would own all things and there's no longer private property and all. there's no longer a capitalist system of governance that Marx was very adamant was oppressing the common man, the common worker. And so the whole philosophy is founded on the idea that of, of grievance, that there are victims. And so here's something that surprised me big time. The Communist Manifesto is currently the fourth best-selling book of all time. That's wild. Did, never would have guessed that. Have you ever read it? Nope. Have you ever seen one? Yeah, Barnes & Noble. Okay, Barnes & Noble. So it's only behind the Bible, the quotations of Chairman Mao, who was a dictator in China, and they have tons of people, so that makes sense, and the Quran. Number four, sold more than 500 million copies since it was first published. So in our last episode, we talked about how the ideas of just one person can cause so much havoc upon the world. Well, buckle up, because <laughs> Marx's ideas throw the world into quite a tailspin.
And so this communist philosophy of Marx um, has, has produced unrivaled waves of genocide and misery and poverty all over the world. Before we start talking about what Marx did, what Marxism ultimately causes and produces in the world, let's talk about who he is, what he thought. Marx embraced many of the same philosophies that led to the bloody devastations of the French Revolution. So like Voltaire and Rousseau, Marx was an outspoken atheist. He spoke forcefully against the influences of religion on the world. He has this quote where he's, you know, he's talking about how communism and, and atheism are like one thing and religion is totally incompatible. He says, communism begins where atheism begins. So think about that. In other words, communism is based on this idea that we're going to create a utopian society where everybody gets equality, justice, everything is going to be wonderful. We're going to try to bring about utopia on earth because there is no utopia in heaven, right? Well, what's the problem with that proposal? It just can't happen. It can't happen. Why not? Because man has fallen. You give power to one person to be able to control all of that for all people, and they will inevitably exploit and abuse people. We go back to Hobbes with the Leviathan. You let the Leviathan loose, and that thing is powerful, and it will, it will devour people. You know, it will destroy people. Governments are not friendly institutions, right? They require limitations. Marx believed that you should let it let it loose, that the government, a big state, should be able to control all things and be benevolent toward everyone. I mean, it's just foolish, right? So Marx believed that religion also was a tool of the oppressive ruling class, and he believed that it dulled the senses of the people so that they would accept their miserable conditions. In other words, you have a bunch of people that are being exploited by their oppressors, and the only reason why they stay exploitable is because they're fooled into believing that there's some inheritance to come, that mm. there's some nobility to their suffering. Who hurt this guy? <laughs> really? Yeah, like for Somebody real. hurt him in this past, and he's just mad. Yeah, he's, he does not like religion. Listen, to, he, this is one of his most famous quotes that you've probably heard, at least the last line of this, this little excerpt. He says, Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. In other words, it's just got them drugged. They're senseless. They can't perceive what they're actually suffering. Religion has just kept them at a place where they're passively accepting this misery. Like, did he ever meet someone who was happy? <laughs> Apparently not. Like, Because these one-liners are great, but like... Just look around. There's a bunch of happy religious people. Yeah, opposed to all the Marxists that are just singing kumbaya everywhere. You know, communism just breeds so much joy. <laughs> so Marx argued that religion should be abolished, and I love this, for the benefit of the religious. So that's this is always the position of the communist kind of mindset. We know better than you, so we're going to impose our beliefs on you so that you can be happier like us. So, I mean, it just tramples the notion of anything uh, individual. And so listen to his, this is a direct quote from, from his writings. He said, the abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people, it's all just make-believe, is the demand for their real happiness. In other words, the reason why I want to ban religion is for the happiness of the religious. Are you, are you feeling like he's, he's on your side, Will? Yeah, but who? Yeah, I don't know. There's just a lot with this guy already. <laughs> Go for it. It just... Like, who hears this and is excited to follow this guy? A lot of people. Really? 500 million people buy his book. Uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> right? But this is the idea that the collective, right, is better than the individual. That you need the government to come and impose its ideas on you because it knows better than you. Right? This is, this is where all this comes from. And so measure this guy already against the founding principles of, of the nation. Just the exact opposite. Diametrically opposite. Total opposite. Like you said, everything is the opposite. And so naturally, Marx is going to be an ardent supporter of Darwin. Shocker. Right? So in a letter to the guy who co-authored the Communist Manifesto with him, a guy named Frederick Engels, he explains that Darwin's theory provided, quote, the basis and natural history for our view. This is perfect. This this will lead people to atheism and look at the way the world is working. Like it's it's just this history of this vicious struggle between creatures for survival. 
And that's kind of what we're talking about is there's all these classes and there's this struggle and we're going to come in on the side of the proletariat so that they can advance in their struggle and emerge victorious over the, the oppressors and the wealthy and the landowners and all of that stuff. And so he loved Darwin because it fit his theories really well. And so when he comes out with his second edition of Das Kapital, which is another one of his series of books in 1873, he sent Darwin a copy that was in Darwin's library when he passed away. And it says in the inscription to Charles Darwin from a true admirer from Karl Marx. Like think of the intersection of the evils that were perpetrated on the world in that book, Darwin and Marx together. But he was a big fan, fanboy, you know, Karl Marx. So like we talked about, Marx's philosophies were in stark contrast to America's founding ideals. He not only advocated for the abolition of religion and moral absolutes that stem from the Bible, but he called for the abolition of individual property rights. So without mincing words, and you know, one of the things I'm grateful for is these guys that are on the other side, man, they don't hold back. They just lay it down. And so Marx wrote, listen to this, the theory of the communist may be summed up in a single sentence, the abolition of private property. So you get, you own nothing. That's the idea. The government, the state owns all of it. Any kind of private property or businesses or anything like that out the window. So under Marx's ideas, the entrepreneurial spirit is crushed because you're not allowed to own a business, a factory, a bank, a school, a rental property, a lemonade stand, like anything you own is collectively owned by the state. And so what's your incentive to go do great things and start a business or all the profit motive is gone. And by the way, the government knows better. You're not entitled to own anything. Not good. <laughs> right. And guess where the, all this comes from? Like you can just, you can draw a straight line from Rousseau for, and remember the guy before the French revolution. Mm -hmm. And what does he say? Society is what corrupts people. It's all these gadgets and things that we, we introduce to humanity that enslaves them. It's commerce that cheapens man and degrades him. Well, Marx is like, totally. I believe that consumerism, you know, capitalism, property rights, it just demeaned people. Listen to what he says. And I want you to imagine this guy coming to you saying, I want your, I want your property because I know better than you for yourself, right? He said, private property has made us so stupid and one-sided that an object is only ours when we have it, when it exists for us as capital, or when it is directly possessed, eaten, drunk, worn, inhabited, and used by us. The abolition of private property is therefore the complete emancipation of all human senses and qualities. Man, if you could just... Give the government everything you have and trust them to give you back whatever you need and to give the rest to everyone else who needs. Just imagine how emancipated you would be, Will. I don't feel emancipated. I mean, it's Rousseau. It's repackaged, more militant Rousseau. And so under Marxism, you have a powerful centralized government that would control the economy, forcibly confiscating and redistributing the wealth and the income of the rich to the poor. And Marx summarized this whole philosophy with the famous words, from each according to his ability, to each according to his needs. And so if you produce a bunch, the government can come and take your bunch and then go give it to people who have little. So that's, that's Rousseau again. And so it seems like Marx was genuinely convinced that this new economic system would elevate the poor and produce a more just society. Like, we're going to share and share alike at the, you know, by threading you at threatening you at the end of a gun, you know? So, but to accomplish this, we go back to Hobbes. We have to untie, unchain the great Leviathan of government's going to have to come out so that it can be released and, and to invade all aspects of the individual life to make sure that you don't have private, private property to make sure that everything is redistributed to basically own all industry, own all private property, own everything. You, you have to have a massive Leviathan to be able to do that. And here's the crazy thing. Marx fears humanity. He fears the individual. He fears capitalist markets more than he fears the government. Mm. But it's not just the markets that Marx saw a need to take control of. In order to have real communist, Marx wrote, 
the education of all children from the moment that they can get along without a mother's care shall be in state institutions. So he's writing this in 1848. What's happening in 1848? Common school movement. So public schools are launching in America, and he is writing that under communism, the state needs to seize control of education. One of the more sadistic things about Marx is that he knows that this can't happen without a violent revolution. Because if I show up at your door and I say, hey, Will, I'm, we're, we're going we're to take all your private property. Easy no. Yeah, that's a no. And th- and thank you very much, but go go away, <laughs> you know. And so he just he flat out admits between capitalist and communist society lies the period of the revolutionary transformation of one into the other. So there has to be a revolution in which the state can be nothing but the revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat. In other words, this is going to be violent. It's going to be authoritative. There's going to be no mercy, and it's going to force this revolution. And he knows it, and he's good with it. And so, like, when you find a communist dictator like Mao Zedong, who leads the communist revolution in China, what does he say? Political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. And so this is a revolution that's so amazing for the people, you know, that they have to be sold at the end of a barrel of a gun. And so communism, this is the crazy part. Because, again, you hear this and you think, this guy's a fringe. Like, who's listening to these kooks? Communism is going to be foisted on many nations through the barrels of many, many guns. So when we get into the 20th century, you see this flurry of nations that start adopting communism through violent revolutions, right? So the first nation that's going to implement a communist governing system is Russia. So in in 1917, Vladimir Lenin, if you've heard that name, becomes, you know, he takes this communist revolution, the Bolshevik revolution, you've probably heard it called, and he goes in and they seize power. And they kill the previous czar, Nicholas, and his whole family while they're in hiding. They take him down to a basement, shoot him, stab his wife and daughters at the end of of bayonets. Then they take them out, burn their bodies, dump acid on the ashes, and dump the remains down a mine shaft. Like, they're they're ruthless. Like, massively ruthless. So Lenin not only killed his predecessor, but then in the Red Terror campaign... He kills six million of his own people to consolidate his authority. And then Joseph Stalin comes along, his successor, not to be outdone, and causes the death of another 20 million of his own people. And they run such a ruthless campaign of utter control by the state that they trample everybody. There's a guy, a really wonderful author named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He spends eight years in a Soviet gulag. He wins the Nobel Prize for literary works based on his experience. And so he wrote a book, a couple of series of books, actually, entitled The Gulag Archipelago. And he's compiling firsthand experiences of what people suffered in these gulags. And so he's talking about how they were silenced and how there was intimidation campaigns and the indoctrination of the youth and surprise arrest of political adversaries and blatant abuses of individual rights and flaunting of state power and torture of dissidents and just a tremendous death toll at the hand of these godless dictators. And he writes in this book, he says they tortured and slaughtered millions of Russians without a shred of human remorse. It cannot be overstated. Bolshevism committed the greatest human slaughter of all time. The fact that most of the world is ignorant and uncaring about this enormous crime is proof that the global media is in the hands of the perpetrators. And then he says, there's always this fallacious belief that it would not be the same here. Here, such things are impossible. Alas, all the evil of the 20th century is possible everywhere on earth. So communism spreads. In 1949, Mao Zedong and the communist revolutionaries win a civil war and they take control of China in a ruthless and bloody civil war. Like they do... They do things that we can't communicate on this podcast, but just utterly ruthless. And the regime leads to the deaths of more than 60 million people. So I want you to imagine that's the equivalent of 10 Holocaust. And still, communism spread like a devastating wildfire throughout the world, bringing misery and poverty and brutality everywhere it spread. And just so you don't think that it was like here and there, just a handful of of nations, 
communism, buckle up, devoured European nations like Albania, Belarus, Bosnia, Bulgaria, Croatia, Czech Republic, Estonia, Finland, East Germany, Greece, Hungary, Latvia, Lithuania, Macedonia, Moldova, Montenegro, Poland, Romania, Yugoslavia, Slovenia, Spain, and Ukraine. It ravaged East Asian nations like Burma, Cambodia, Kampuchea, Laos, Mongolia, Nepal, North Korea, North Vietnam, South Vietnam, and Tibet. It swallowed up Central Asian nations of Afghanistan, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Yemen, African nations of Angola, Benin, Cape Verde, Congo, Ethiopia, Guinea, Madagascar, Mozambique, Somalia, and Sudan. Communism found a home in the Americas in Colombia, Cuba, Granada, Nicaragua, and Peru. Like, this is not just a small movement. You can start understanding why this book, The Communist Manifesto, sold 500 million copies. And so... Since 1917, communist regimes caused the deaths of more than 100 million people. By the end of the 20th century, communism was deemed so destructive that even the Soviet Union, where it found its birthplace under the leadership of Mikhail Gorbachev, outlawed the practice in 1991. And after that, a wave of other nations followed suit embracing more free market principles. And today, thank God, there's only five nations left in the world that remain committed to communism. China, Cuba, Laos, Vietnam, and North Korea. All bastions of just joy and freedom. Yeah, not where you want to go. (laughs) And yet, if you go into our college institutions and public schools, like you don't learn that this is that level of an evil on humanity. You don't learn the dangers of Marxism or communism, do you? Did you learn this? No. Why not? This is just in the last century. It's been a plague that's taken 100 million people. you, You learn about Germany and the Holocaust, rightly so. But for some reason, the universities remain silent on the atrocities and the the inhumanity of communism. It's fascinating to me. And so later in life, Alexander Solzhenitsyn writes this, and I think he's just, it's just such simple wisdom, but it's so profound. He writes, over a half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of old people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten about God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I've spent 50 years working on the history of our revolution In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Amen. That's powerful. Because if there is no God, we get back to the question, without God, all things are permissible. What's to stop this from happening? What is the higher power? Even after the German Holocaust and with all of these commanders and military officials saying, but I was under orders. Even then, in the Nuremberg trials, they were forced to conclude that there is a higher authority that governs over men. You're responsible to not do atrocious behaviors and evil acts like this. But you cannot reason to that conclusion apart from God. And so the great irony is that Karl Marx launched this philosophy claiming that it was, it was motivated by concern for the poor. Okay, well, let's look at, at what communism does for the poor. In the decades following communism's collapse, global poverty rates fell from 43% to 21%. More than a billion people were lifted out of poverty. When China began to enact economic reforms to allow more freedom in its economic markets, what was the result? People's average income enjoyed a 13-fold increase. So the more that China pulls away from a centrally planned economy and gets into global commerce, the more its poor are benefited. And I love this. One recent study looked at national economies around the world. They went and said, 
All right, let's divide all the nations into half. We'll, we'll rank the top half that are closer to economic freedom. You know, they have free market capitalism. They have protections for economic individual prop, property rights. And the other half, they said, okay, well, let's look at the countries that are more Marxist-leaning, centrally planned economies, very few individual property rights. They looked at the poorest 10% in all of those nations, and they found that the poorest 10% of people living in the freer nations earned six times as much, not a couple of percentage points, six times as much than the poorest 10% living in nations with controlled Marxist-type economies. So if you were to go and look at the nation's poor and say, which, which system works better to elevate the poor out of their miseries, you would have to conclude that capitalism eats the lunch of communism all day long around the world. I mean, it seems obvious. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it is. I mean, I don't understand why this is still up for debate. You know, we get back to that, that question, that great quote from Thucydides, that history is philosophy teaching by example. And already you can look at this and say, okay, what do you think of Marx? Two thumbs down. Two thumbs down. Like, this is devastating. Like, think of all the real lives that were destroyed with this philosophy and communism. So when people tell you that they embrace communism or socialism because they care for the poor, you politely inform them that their ideology has been an utter scourge upon the world. Like it just, it's the, it's hideous. And so Marx believed the systems would lift people out of poverty. And the reality is it led to countless millions of people dying and suffering under worsened poverty and mass starvation around the world. You see this life expectancy in capitalist nations were soaring at the same time that life expectancy in all the communist nations was falling infant mortality was increased in communist nations at a time when medicine and everything else was, was soaring in the capitalist nations. So it's, it's just crazy to claim that communism, and, and what, well, what you'll find is you know all those nations that we listed, they just never did it right. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's seriously the argument that you hear from people as, well, true communism has never really been tried. That's because you're imagining true communism as having leaders that are not impacted by the fallen nature of man mm. and that is a pipe dream it does not exist that's why our founders were brilliant enough to put restraints on government because we knew that man cannot be trusted with unchecked power they will demolish and devour one another so recent surveys have revealed that the last the latest couple of generations to go out into adulthood millennials and gen z have a, a more favorable view of socialism than capitalism which is just shows you what is being taught in the universities and what's not being taught in the universities. 57% of millennials believe that the Declaration of Independence offers better guarantees of freedom and equality than the Communist Manifesto. Think 50, only 57%. It's because we've never read the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> That's the reality. And you, they've definitely not been taught. And if you're looking, if you remember any of the studies on civics and history, they probably don't know what either of those documents are, honestly, with modern education. But so that's the question. Like, how did Marxism gain traction in America? Because it has like from the from the ideals of the founding, you have seen the growth of government intervention and its role in society without question in America. And so they did not want this in, in our society. But let's just let's just go there because Marxism had a hard time gaining traction in America. Um you know, communist revolutions, and Marx knew this, they required a crisis to spur the proletariat to overthrow the ruling class. But in the American economy, with its principles of limited government and individual rights and the entrepreneurial spirit that was creating massive amounts of wealth, the economy was blazing. We had brief setbacks, but for the most part, we were growing so rapidly. And in fact, that's why so many Europeans were coming to America in droves from Ireland and Germany specifically in the second half of the 19th century, it's because their economies were convulsing while America's economy was booming. Marx, who was a German philosopher, knew this. And so as a vocal atheist and a proponent of revolution, Marx was expelled from Germany. Then he was expelled from France. Then he was expelled from Belgium and then from Germany again. 
And these nations all recognize that his ideas were dangerous, and he finally moves to London where his ideas are more tolerated. And in 1850, he, the Communist Manifesto is translated into English. Two years later, he's hired as a European correspondent for the New York Daily Tribune, which has, is the largest newspaper at the time in America with a daily circulation of 50,000 people. So America finds this kook that's been booted out of all these other nations and thinks, we would like for you to write in our most influential newspaper. How do you feel about that, Will? What is going on? He got kicked out of countries, and we're like, oh, yeah, you get a job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Come influence our people. This will go great. So he's expelled from all these places. And, and so this is like the first baby step win for Marxist ideals will take place in Germany later on. So mid-1800s, Germany's facing increasingly loud calls for socialism, lots of economic strife going on. And so in 1871, they have a guy, you may have heard of this figure from history. His name is Otto von Bismarck, right? Yep. Kind of a famous guy. He comes to power. And at first he passes... All these, you know, anti-socialist law of 1878, like he he does not like socialism, but the political pressure of the nation starts pushing against him. And he thinks, you know what, to appease them and to keep them from, you know, revolt or revolution, he started imposing policies that he later called state socialism that started in 1883. And so it's the first government uh, to try socialism of, of its kind. And so it began with government health insurance, and then it extended to accident insurance, and then it became disability insurance, and later on, even unemployment insurance. And so that's going on in Germany. And in 1870, guess where most of our immigrants were coming from? Don't say Germany. Germany. In 1880, Germany. In 1890, Germany. In 1900, Germany. And so all these people are coming over into America that are familiar with the ideas of state socialism, which are like... Let's just pause for a moment. Like safety nets are not necessarily a bad thing, right? Are we? Can we agree on that? But yeah. the founders, I'll tell you this, would have been like, that's not the job of government. Like, of course not. We don't do that here. So at the same time, you have the second industrial revolution that's gaining steam. And so the American economy is booming. Wealthy robber barons, like that's when they're happening, like... Rockefeller and Carnegie and all those guys amassing tremendous amounts of wealth. And guess what? Wages for workers begins to soar. And so they're looking at this saying, well, I would like to make more money, but now my employees want more money. So to maximize profits, the owners of industry begin looking for ways to get cheaper labor. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. So what do they do? They begin exploiting the marginalized classes of people, including all of those German and Irish immigrants that are showing up, including minorities and women and even children. And so you're going to see child labor laws that come out of this, which are good things. So these terrible labor conditions, because it's all about profit, right? So this is kind of where capitalism goes awry and you get into like almost social Darwinism, dog eat dog, make the most money. Humanity means nothing. Trample them into ground to get what you can get out of them. Really gross. And so the labor conditions helps Marxism grow in popularity. So each year at that time, 35,000 workers were killed on the job. 536,000 workers injured on the job every year. Child labor laws. Before the child labor laws of the 1920s, a quarter of all children under 14 years old worked full-time. That's crazy to me. Whoa. Wow. Less than half of Americans received more than a grade school education. That was required by law. But then everybody went and worked in the factories or whatnot. And so these sorts of conditions began provoking labor strikes. So if you go and you study history during this time in 1873, Vanderbilt, who's the robber baron over the railway industry, you know, is cutting payers of the workers by 10%. And then four years later, big layoffs and another cut of 10%. And these huge strikes start hitting West Virginia and St. Louis and Chicago and New York and Baltimore. And they turn deadly. And a couple of the riots later on, like they're going to have bombs blowing up. The Great Railway Strike of 1877 required 10 governors to mobilize 60,000 troops to end the strike and its riots. And so remember what Marx is saying? Every great Marxist revolution needs that stirring crisis, right? Well, this is great. Like, this is wonderful time for recruiting. And so by the first half of the 20th century, 
Marx became the most frequently cited person in all the social sciences literature. Mm. So these kinds of conditions, now there's a backlash against capitalism. And this is because the church is not doing its job. And so seeing the plight of the poor, many people grow enamored with socialism, believing it's the answer to elevate people out of poverty. Here's a little trivia nugget for you that will surprise you probably. A guy named Francis Bellamy, the guy who wrote the Pledge of Allegiance in 1892, was a socialist Baptist minister. How does that all go together? <laughs> well, back then it did, hand in glove. If you went back to the late 1800s and the early 1900s, socialism inside the church was rampant. Mm. It, was, it was very common um, because the world hadn't seen what happens when socialism grows up into communism just yet. So everybody's thinking, you know, the right thing to do is, is to use the government and to use the government power to redistribute and to make things fair. And I mean, like you can, you can jump into that mindset and think, man, that's really brilliant. Like, and it's compassionate. We should do that. But the reality is when you start untying the Leviathan to carry this stuff out, it doesn't end well. Mm -mm. This is wild. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. <laughs> so this was the original pledge. I pledge allegiance to my flag and to the republic for which it stands, one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. What do you notice? No, under God. Yeah, under God doesn't show up in the pledge until 1954, and it comes because our government's looking at the atrocities of the communists, and they're looking at the pledge, and they know that it was written by a socialist, and they're like, no, we are not atheistic communists here. Mm. We're adding under God to our pledge. And you can kind of see, like, the pledge is got kind of socialist collectivist ideals about it. Like we're one nation, individual, indivisible, all together, justice for all. Like that was the heart behind socialism with the best of intentions. They wanted to unleash the government to impose fairness and to help the poor. And when it's tried almost inevitably, it decimates the poor and it destroys Liberty. And so as a consequence of Darwin and Marxist ideas and the second industrial revolution and the urbanization of society, an increasing number of people started saying, you know what, like we can engineer society. We can, we can let government come in and we'll start engineering our economy and everything else. And like we'll see in the next episode, the church totally lost its moorings, took a sharp turn toward theological liberalism where they were abandoning beliefs in the authority of scripture and even abandoning their belief in the supernatural. And humanity as a whole started having this idea that it could perfect itself apart from religion. And so like, here's a great quote that illustrates this. Bertrand Russell in his book, Why I'm Not a Christian, 1927, says, like, I mean, you just get this picture. Like, They believed they could create a utopia without God, right? Look at all the scientific advancements and look at all the medicines and look at everything else. Like, So he says, science can help us get over this craven fear in which man has lived for so many generations. Science can teach us, and I think our own hearts can teach us, no longer to look around for imaginary supports. That's a dig at religion. No longer to invent allies in the sky, but rather to look to our own efforts here below to make this world a fit place to live in instead of the sort of place that the churches in all these centuries have made it. So this is kind of the prevailing attitude. We can perfect ourselves. We'll be, we don't need God. Man is, man is the measure of all things. And so it seemed like humanity was, was filled with arrogant people who felt entitled to thrust their schemes for society on everyone else. And it's just, it's like the same as the social Darwinist believed that, you know, you could cultivate a better human race by steering evolution through eugenics or a Holocaust, but a far more subtle manifestation of Darwin and Marx led people that they could engineer society by imposing on individual rights of others. And so in the first half of American history, the trajectory was totally individual rights. Even, even the evils of slavery couldn't survive the principles of the founding. Like it was a constant source of tension that just couldn't be tolerated by the body in America because it, it violated the idea that we were created equal and had inalienable rights. That was the great argument of the abolitionist movement that led to the Civil War and the death of more than 600,000 people who died fighting for that ideal. And so in the late 1800s, America was off the reservation, you know, wanting to, to unleash the powerful Leviathan. And so that's what happened. After losing the Republican nomination in, in 1912, Theodore Roosevelt, like he's a 
beloved figure of history, right? Well, he's a progressive. He believes this kind of stuff. And so listen to what he says. He's running against Woodrow Wilson. And he says, Mr. Wilson stated his position when he said that the history of government, the history of liberty, was the history of the limitation of government power. Well, amen, right? Yeah, we're with Wilson. Yeah, right? Well, not always. No, 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 no. But he said, we propose, on the contrary, to extend government power in order to secure the liberty of the wage workers, of the men and women who toil in industries, and save the liberty of the oppressed from the oppressor. There's Marxism. That's like, if you told me Marx wrote that, I'd be like, yeah. Amen. Like, that is it. We're going to save the oppressed from the oppressed. That's total, totally influenced by Marxist ideals. And so the, the growth of government, and I said, now, this is where you're going to get all my libertarian, you know, fires running. So the founding generation believed that humanity was best served when individual rights were protected from government powers. Under the progressive movement, it was the exact opposite. Like the individual should be suppressed for the sake of the collective. And that's what led to crazy things like eugenics and and all of that, where government was just unleashed and individuals suffered from the powers of the collective. And so here's something that will show you just how allergic to government power our founders were. Ready? At the beginning of the 20th century, 1900, there was still no such thing as a federal income tax. Huh. Like that was seen as an intrusion into states' rights. It was seen as an abuse of individual rights. It was a clear violation of constitutional liberties. That, that kind of blows me away today. The only time a federal income tax had ever been used in American history happened during the Civil War and until 1872 to help pay for Reconstruction. But apart from that, never. The government's incomes came from tariffs and customs duties, and when Congress tried to pass the Income Tax Act of 1894, so during all this progressive movement, like we need to empower government to, to run the show, the Supreme Court quickly struck it down. And the chief justice of the court said, nothing can be clearer than that what the Constitution intended was to guard against the exercise by the general government of the power of directly taxing persons and property within any state through a majority made up from other states just flat out you cannot have that in america and so in that decision they cited like hundreds of examples where the founders and the courts were warning against the government growing and and taking from people and redistributing through programs and everything else jefferson himself said this a wise and frugal government shall leave men free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement and shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned this is the sum of good government. So to paraphrase, the sum of good government is not to take from people what they've earned for themselves. That was the founding ideals. And so the shift away from that, right, toward this progressive model of government was so complete that in 1913, the U.S. ratified the 16th Amendment to allow for the federal government to tax individual incomes. So people voted for this. So, I mean, yeah, three, three quarters of the states approved it. So through the democratic process, we brought this on ourselves. And so I'm, I, that's, the, that's the way our founders wired us. But it shows you the shift in the mindset of the people was totally toward we want the government to intervene and to start redistributing and, and running things, right? And so initially, the highest tax rate didn't exceed 7% and less than 4% of the country even paid taxes. But- Whenever you start unstrapping the Leviathan, guess what's going to happen? It can't restrain itself. And so within four years, the income tax replaced tariffs as the chief source of income. And then when you get to World War I, suddenly the top tax rate's 77%. Whoa. Can you imagine working and the government's taking 77 cents of every dollar you make? I mean, no. that's the top tax rate. And so do you think they lowered it back to 7%? Never. <laughs> Governments don't do that, right? So from the 1930s to Reagan's election in 1980, the top, top tax rate never, peacetime or not, top tax rate never fell below 63%. Got as high as 94% during World War II. It's like just wild. And so like, and this is where you need to stop and remember that we had a revolution for independence because England taxed our tea and our stamps. <laughs> And suddenly the American people were voting for people to impose far more draconian taxes upon us. So we'd given up the spirit of the founders. And so 
And so the principles of limited government began to fade. So here's just by comparison, I want you to hear this. In 1914, this is the first year with constitutional ability to collect income tax. The whole federal government with the income tax, they brought in $80 million. Okay, that's, all right. 2022, that number had grown to $4.9 trillion. And so if even if you account for inflation, the federal government has expanded its tax receipts by more than 200,000%. Wow. It just grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And so pause that for a moment. And now we go back to this period of the progressive movement. The momentum of Marxism that, that you saw in 1917 with the Bolshevik Revolution when Russia fell into communism, Americans were so fascinated with this new experiment in Marxism, like hundreds of influential Americans started making pilgrimages to Russia to examine this new Marxist society. And almost all of them hailed Soviet Marxism as this great triumph in history. Like everybody was going over there being like, we've got to bring that back to America. And even Dr. Louis Fuhrer, who is a disavowed Marxist now, he was a professor of sociology, uh, helped to found the teacher's college at Harvard. He said, America's intellectual and social leaders were looking to the practice of the Soviet Union to gain guidance on domestic policy. So straight out of his writings, he says, this transformation in American thought was largely the work of a small number of several hundreds of travelers to the Soviet Union during the previous decade. The reports which they published affected American political consciousness more deeply nonetheless than any other foreign influence in its history. And so you get all of these people who go over there and come back and they're like, we need to bring Marxism here. And so even you get Harold Ickes, who's the secretary of the interior under FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 32nd president. He's the one who brings the new deal where for the first time you see the American government's like influence over society balloon and expand like the new deal was this huge proposal of new economic policies and harold ickes writes that some of the things that were being done in russia and even some of the things that were being done under hitler's socialist germany came to roosevelt and roosevelt was saying we're doing them like that's what we want to do but we're going to do them in a more orderly way is what he said if you go and you look at the pilgrims who went to Russia, it reads like a who's who of revolutionary Western thinkers of the era. So Bertrand Russell, who I quoted earlier, goes to Russia and he comes back. And in his book, The Practice and Theory of Bolshevism, he writes to the world, the Russian Revolution is one of the great heroic events in world history. By far, the most important aspect of the Russian Revolution is an attempt to realize communism. I believe that communism is necessary to the world, and I believe that the heroism of Russia has fired men's hopes in a way which was essential to the realization of communism in the future. Bolshevism deserves the gratitude and admiration of all the progressive part of mankind. The founder of the ACLU, a guy named Roger Baldwin, goes over there in 1926. And he goes there, he studies the, the place, he comes back and he writes, Liberty Under the Soviets. That, that title of that book is just amazing. <laughs> and he celebrates the revolution and how it, quote, broke the bonds between the state and the old Orthodox Church. And he commends them for recognizing that the clergy was a possible rival to the communist program and stamping them out. So this is the American Civil Liberties Union guy. He admired their willingness to crush dissenting opinions and to require all public meetings to be officially approved in advance. And so when he comes back and writes, listen to what he says. He says, I saw in the Soviet Union many opponents of the regime. I visited a dozen prisons, the political sections among them. I saw considerable of the work of the OGPU, which is the secret police. I heard a good many stories of severity, even of brutality, and many of them from the victims. And while I sympathized with personal distress, I could not bring myself to get excited over the suppression of opposition when I stacked it up against what I saw, fresh, vigorous expressions of free living by workers and peasants all over the land. And further, no champion of a socialist society could fail to see that some suppression was necessary to achieve it. It could not be all done by persuasion. Margaret Sanger, remember her, yep. eugenics, Planned Parenthood. 
She goes over there and writes back, Russia today is the country of the liberated woman. The attitude of Soviet Russia toward its women would delight the heart of the staunchest feminist. John Dewey, we're going to get big into him in a future episode, who is considered the father of American education, modern American education, goes to Russia in 1928, and he writes that it's a revolution involving the release of human powers on such an unprecedented scale that it's of incalculable significance not only for that country, but for the world. And so you get these very influential voices that are going over there, and they come back and they make it sound like, gosh, heaven has come down to earth in Russia and Soviet Union. Does that boggle your mind? That does. And so this is where you get these influences, and there's prophetic voices. <laughs> you know, the church laid down and allowed Darwin to win the day. And the church laid down in this era when it got consumed by theological liberalism and not believing the scripture anymore. And Darwin and Marx won the day because godly people waved the white flag and allowed this poison to decimate the world for the next century. And there were conservative pastors back then, and one of them was a Princeton theologian named A.A. Hodge, and he predicted what would happen if education and all of these influences were allowed to conquer the minds of people in that generation. So in 1887, listen to what he says. I am as sure as I am of Christ's reign that a comprehensive and centralized system of national education separated from religion, as is now commonly proposed, will prove the most appalling enginery for the propagation of anti-Christian and atheistic unbelief and of anti-social nihilistic ethics, individual, social, and political, which this sin-rent world has ever seen. The man had an understanding that when you divorce society from God, when you divorce society from the principles of liberty and an understanding of the fallen nature of man, when you divorce a society from those foundational bedrock principles, literally all hell will break loose. And sadly, the church allowed that to happen. And that is what we're going to talk about in our next installment of this series, How Did We Get Here? Thanks for joining us. God bless. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. Music for this episode included The Epic Hero and The Inspiration by Keys of Moon, Adrift Among Infinite Stars by Scott Buckley, Reporting from the Scene by Maxco Music, Guardians of the Fallen by Ghost Drifter, and Frog Legs Rag by James Scott. You can learn more about the Out of Water Podcast and Rio Vista Church at our website, riovistachurch.com.